You really do. Glorifying, leading us to the throne. Uh, please open your scriptures with me to chapter 6 of Matthew. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 19 through 24. There are a lot of stories about cursed treasure. Have you ever noticed that? A lot of, a lot of legends and myths, certainly the pirate treasures that you hear about that are cursed. Uh, Captain Kidd's lost, lost uh, booty that was, uh, is supposedly cursed. We have one actually near here that they've been digging at for, for years off the coast of Nova Scotia, Oak Island. They, they don't know what's down there, but they've been digging there for, for actually uh, a century and a half, trying to find out what's down beneath there. A lot of uh, myths surrounding that, that treasure. You have the famous Aztec Montezuma's treasure that, that has been lost and is supposedly cursed. I mean, that was what the, the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean movies were based on. That first one was the, the lost but cursed Aztec treasure, and they were cursed of being zombies, if you remember that. But perhaps the most famous cursed treasure is King Tut's treasure, the Egyptian king. When the tomb of of King Tutankhamun was opened in November of 1922, what they found actually was astonishing. They found an intact king's tomb, which they'd never found before because grave uh, robbers would always find their way in and and, and uh, take away all the valuables. So every king that they would, they would find in that Valley of Kings was always torn up. But they found King Tut's tomb pristine, the way it was left 4,000 years earlier. And the, and the gold and the gems and the riches there were immense. And, the, you know, if you were around, I think in the 70s and 80s, the, the, the treasure was touring around and you got to see it. It was a, a tremendous. However, within a few years of opening that tomb speculation about that treasure being cursed began to circulate because strange things started happening to the people that were there on that day. George Herbert, who is the person who financed that dig, unexpectedly died within a few months of opening the tomb. Archibald Reed, the, the physician who actually x-rayed the, the, uh, the mummy, King Tut's body, died three days after taking those pictures. Excavator Hugh White committed suicide a couple years after that. And he left a note saying, I have succumbed to the curse that forces me to disappear. G.J. Gould died of pneumonia a year after. Aaron Ember died in a fire in 1926. Richard Bethel was found smothered in 1929. And Bruce Ingham, who was just given a gift... Of, of something they found in the tomb that he was using as a paperweight, his house burned to the ground. Now, I don't believe in curses. I don't believe in curses. And I don't believe that treasures are cursed. But I think the fact that it is so commonly held is telling, isn't it? It shows perhaps that deep down... In each one of us, we might believe what Jesus is telling us here today. That earthly treasures are dangerous. 
earthly treasures, pursuing earthly treasures is dangerous. Look with me at verse 19 in chapter 6, where Jesus says to us, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Please pray with me. Father God, I pray that you will help my preaching this morning. Spirit, that you will use these words well in people's lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Here Jesus is trying to help us understand how spiritually critical it is, how spiritually critical it is that we prioritize the things of God over the things of this earth. It's very simple. And he does this by using three metaphors. And the first metaphor is the treasures. Look with me again at verses 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is teaching us here the power of what we treasure, the power of what we treasure that what we treasure guides and in some way greatly controls our lives. What we treasure controls our lives. So we have to be careful. We have to be wise in what occupies our minds, what we think about, what is, what is dear to us. We have to be wise on, on what, is, what we bring into that inner circle in our heart. We have to be wise in, in what we put our security in. Right? We have to be careful what gives us gives our lives meaning. We have to be careful on the meaning, what we're trying to suck our meaning out of. We have to be careful what we're deriving our value from as a person. Because whatever it is, and it can be many things, whatever it is, it tends to control your life. It directs your life. That's, I think, what he means by there your heart will be also. I think that's what Jesus is saying there. And here Jesus is telling us that it is foolish to treasure what the world offers you, what the world extends, what the world is saying, this is the it. You know, this is the I Ching of life. Because all the security and happiness and hope that it has to offer, Jesus is saying, is temporary. What the world is extending out to you and saying, this is it, this will, this will fulfill you, 
is empty. It is rust and dust, as he says here. See, in the ancient world, this, what, he, what Jesus is doing is pulling this metaphor from something the people understood well. In the ancient world, there were no banks, there were no safes, there were no safety deposit boxes that we have today in other places where we put our valuables. What people did is they, they dug a hole in the ground of their house, which was typically dirt, and they would put the, what, what was valuable to them in that hole. This would typically be fine clothing, which was a status symbol, much like it is today, status symbol. Money that they had managed to save, their silver, their gold, maybe, maybe some precious gems, and possibly a family heirloom they would put in there, something that means a lot to them, that's been handed down through generations, a necklace or a bracelet or, or a family ring. We see an example of this in Joshua chapter 6 when, when the Israelites go and they conquer Jericho, if you remember that. But when they go into the promised land, God says, listen, don't take any of the gold or silver or, or clothing or anything when you conquer the, this promised land because that all belongs to me. See, that way he was symbolizing that he is doing the conquering. He's trying to tell the people he is doing the conquering, not them. Typically, the the conqueror got the booty, right? They got to take what they conquered. But God was saying, no, you're actually not conquering the land. I'm conquering the land. So you don't get any of that stuff. And so they go into Jericho, and they conquer Jericho by faith. And they leave, and they leave all all the gold and silver behind. But Achan, if you remember, Achan, he goes into a house, and he sees some fine Babylonian clothing. And he sees 200 uh, pieces of silver and he sees a gold ingot and he can't help it. And he takes it. And where does he place that stuff? He digs a hole in his tent and he places it in the ground. That's, what I, that's what's valuable to me. That's what the ancients did with what they valued. They put them in a hole. So it makes sense of what Jesus is saying here. The family would then go into their house and unearth their treasures and they would look and they would see uh, moths have gotten in here. Vermin, some type of vermin. And they've eaten holes in that fine clothing that I had there. Or they would look at that family heirloom that they they had been handed down and they, they saw that rust had corroded through part of it. Or they, they dug it up and it wasn't there. Why? Well, because the house were made of, of earth and mud. And so thieves would easily just dig through and then look around and, take, and steal their, their belongings. So what Jesus is saying through this metaphor is, is just very simple. Worldly treasures, what you bury in your heart, worldly treasures... If it's not heavenly treasures, if it's worldly, will always and ultimately fail you. Always, ultimately fail you. So if you're placing your happiness or security or hope in anything other than Christ and the things of Christ, anything, if you're working hard for the things that this world can give you and not... What heaven offers you, you'll always be disappointed. Always. Because 
everything the world can offer you is at best temporary. At best temporary. Several years ago, one of Hollywood's most iconic pieces of memorabilia, the ruby red slippers in The Wizard of Oz, began to, they noticed they began to fade and deteriorate rapidly. They were originally created in this vivid red to take advantage of the new technology, the new color technology that was coming out in movies at the time. But over the period of 80 years, they had begun to deteriorate and the red was faded and they were becoming fragile. So what the Smithsonian did is they, they basically took up an offering. They said, listen, send money in to save the shoes. It's going to cost us $300,000 to restore these shoes. Within a month, they had the money. It sounds a little extreme for a pair of shoes, doesn't it? Right? Our faces kind of squinch up and we go, $300,000. Are they really that valuable? But we all have fading ruby red shoes in our lives, don't we? We all have things like that that we're willing to, to put that much into. Those things that we'll do almost anything to keep. Those things in our life that we hold on to a little too tightly. Those things that have moved from our hands to our heart. It's basically what happens. And what Jesus is saying here is that whatever it is, whatever it is, it's nothing more than a pair of old fading shoes. Now, maybe it's money. And that's what Jesus points to here in our last verse, in verse 24. It is so prevalent. This is such a prevalent worldly treasure. This is so prevalent in, in it moving from our hands to our heart that Jesus spoke more about money than any other singular thing in his ministry here. So money might be your pair of old fading shoes. So it's very common, very common to look to your bank account for that security, for the hope, right? Very common to look to your retirement, your 401k, for your security, right? Now, there's nothing wrong with having a 401k. There's nothing wrong with having money and making money. But it's What's wrong, Jesus is saying, is when it goes from your hand to your heart, when it starts to move into your heart and take priority, when you begin to depend on those things for what you should be depending upon Christ for. Money in itself is not evil. Having a lot of money in itself is not evil. Whether you have 6,000 in your bank account, 600 in your bank account, or 6 million in your bank account makes no matter to God. What matters to God is the place it has in your heart. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Listen to what Paul writes to Timothy. He says, but those who desire to be rich, let me reword that in the words of what Jesus is saying here. Those whose treasure becomes money fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. 
It's when money moves from your hand to your heart is when it becomes sinful. Through it, he says, this craving, through this craving, through this treasuring, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Billy Graham has said many times, there's nothing wrong with men possessing riches. The wrong comes when the riches possessed the man. J.C. Ryle wrote, Wealth is no mark of God's favor. Poverty is no mark of God's displeasure. Money in truth is one of the most unsatisfying of possessions, he writes. It takes away some cares, no doubt, but it brings with it quite as many cares as it takes away. There's the trouble of the getting of it, the anxiety of the keeping of it. There are temptations in the using of it. There is guilt in the abuse of it. There is sorrow in the losing of it. There is perplexity in the disposing of it. And what Jesus is adding here is one more thing. It will ultimately fail you. Because it cannot carry the weight that you are asking it to carry. It cannot carry the weight of your soul, as Tim Keller says. You're asking something not designed to carry that weight, to carry that weight. And it gives out from underneath. Because money is nothing more than a pair of old fading shoes. Now, now there are other treasures that move into our heart just as easily. Maybe it's your possessions. Maybe those things have moved into your heart. The last word in, in this section in verse 24 is translated money, but that is the word mammon. That just represents money, but it can represent possessions too, your possessions. So maybe all the things that you own or have has moved into your, into your heart. Maybe those are the things that, that occupy your mind. Or maybe it's your job. Your job can become your treasure, what you treasure most. It can move into your heart. Or your reputation, defending your reputation, can move into your heart. And it can control your life. Or maybe a relationship can be a treasure that moves into your heart. The good relationship can move into your heart and displace the Lord. Anything that you're leaning back into you know, what came to mind as I was just writing this this week is leaning, leaning into the arms, you know, that, that, that hymn. Leaning back. What are you leaning back into, re- relaxing into? And trying to say, this is where I get my happiness. This is where I get my security from. This is, this is where I, I find hope. If it's not Christ, if it's not Christ and the things of Christ, it's a pair of old fading shoes, Jesus is saying. That's the perspective that Jesus wants us to gain here. Paul, again, writing to Timothy in chapter 6 of his first letter, says something very succinct, but something that we have to really realize is God's word, truth, telling us. For we brought nothing into the world and we take nothing out of it. I mean, it's that simple. 
Yet the world and our flesh, the world offers and our flesh is drawn to, is tempted to, thinking that those things are permanent. That is what will do it for me. And when that happens, Scripture says you get pierced with many griefs. Or, or like Demas in Paul's letter to Timothy 2, we find out that Demas loved stuff, possessions, so much that he wandered from the faith. He left Paul. He left the ministry. He left God. Matthew 16.26 puts it this way, What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Martin Lord jones encourages us by saying, Do not cling to these earthly treasures, brothers and sisters. Do not let them become the center of your life and existence. Do not let them or, or dwell upon them constantly in your mind. Do not let them absorb your life. Do not let them govern you. On the contrary, he says, hold them loosely. Wonderful, simple advice. And that's what Jesus is telling us. Hold mammon loosely. Hold what the world offers you loosely. Hold it. It's fine to hold it. It's fine to have it in your hand. But hold it loosely. Don't start clutching it to your heart. And that's what we tend to do with things that are sacred, right? We clutch them to our heart. It's very telling as well, isn't it? So, what are your treasures? That's what the Spirit is asking you today. What has moved from your hands to your heart? And that's what Jesus wants us to inspect in the second metaphor that he has for us here today. The eye. That's what he wants us to do. He wants us to inspect. Look with me at verses 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if then the darkness in you, if the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness, he says. The idea behind this metaphor actually builds on the previous one. First, you must realize that our hearts are drawn to earthly treasures, but then, he says, you must be discerning about these treasures, about what you allow into your heart. Jesus uses the eye to explain this. The eye is the window through which light passes, right? That's what he's saying. The amount and quality of light that comes through the window into the room depends upon the window. If the window is clean, the room is full of light. If the window is warped or dirty, the room is dimmer and darker. Jesus is saying, by way of this metaphor, that what comes into a man's heart depends on the spiritual condition of your window, of your eye, of what you're allowing in, i.e., how spiritually discerning the person is. How spiritually discerning the person is. If you're able to discern what is heavenly treasure and you pursue that, that's good. If you're, able to dis- not, if you're not able to discern, if your eye is, is dark, if you're not able to discern, then what you're letting in will cause darkness. It leads to utter darkness, he says. It's a very interesting, interesting verse he has there. 
at the end. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? First, notice that there's an exclamation point there. There's an imperative here. There's, Jesus is, 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 really wants to convey something here that's important, right? But, but notice also that it's actually a very confusing verse, isn't it? If then the light in you is darkness, what does that mean? What is Jesus saying there? It seems like nonsensical. It's a strange sentence. It means that a person can be self-deceived into thinking their spiritual discernment is good when it's really bad. We see that that in the world, when we share Christ with, with people that don't know Christ, don't do one, right? When we share Christ, we see that a person many times, we will extend the hope that is in Christ, the life that is in Christ, the peace that is in Christ, the forgiveness that is in Christ. And that person just doesn't discern that. Their eye is bad. They don't get it. I mean, Paul tells us why in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, well, you know, the the ruler of this world has, has deceived them, has blinded them, so that they can't understand it. They are sincerely deceived. They have bad eyes. That's what Kent Hughes means when he writes, sadly, most of those who are in darkness don't even know it, right? They don't even know it. They are self-deceived, he writes. But then he goes on to say this. Many Christians are like this. They think their eye is good when it is bad. They think their loyalty to Christ and his values is deep and grounded when in fact it is shallow and contrived. Greed reigns, not Christ. Thus, how great the darkness. How tragic that is, he writes. Thousands of Christians think they have it all together, but their eyes are clouded by materialism and their lives are inauthentic. So how's your vision? How are your eyes? Are they clouded? Are they discerning about what is worldly and what is heavenly? Are they discerning about what you have allowed to move into your heart? The Assyrian culture had a superstition that if a demon saw itself in a mirror, it would fly away. The idea was the demon would see its ugliness and flee. That's a silly superstition. But what Christ is essentially doing here is holding up a mirror in front of each one of us this morning. He's asking you to to begin discerning, begin to have a good eye, a discerning spirit on what you are allowing into your heart. What you're allowing that you're holding in the hands that you're now starting to clutch to your breast. And it's a hard mirror, people. It's a hard mirror he's holding up here. Because he's asking, what do you yearn for more than heaven? What do you yearn for more than heaven? Maybe it is money. What grips your life more than Christ? 
Maybe it's, maybe it's some kind of cause that takes over. What guides and directs your life more than the things of God? Maybe it's your reputation. What are you depending on for deep, abiding satisfaction or security or hope? Maybe it is a relationship or the lack thereof. What are you looking for to prove your value? I'm valuable. Is it what your body looks like? You can, you can take that into your heart. Jesus is asking, what are the ugly and fading treasures that you have, you have allowed to move into your heart? That's the mirror he's holding up. But it's, it's really a two-way mirror, brothers and sisters. Because yes, it is a hard mirror to hold up. But it's also a gracious mirror he's holding up here. Because, brothers and sisters, none of us do this perfectly. Brothers and sisters, we all have allowed things to move into our hearts. Every person sitting here, I'm sure of it. We're not perfect. We all have ugliness inside us. We all have treasures that we are clutching into in our hearts. The parable of the soils teaches us that we have weeds in our hearts that we are allowing to begin to choke out the light in us. And what the gospel frees us to do is to be honest about it. That the gospel frees us to be honest about it. That's the, that's the second way this mirror works. Because the gospel is not about doing it perfectly. It's not about works. It's about grace, right? It's not about shame. The gospel is not about shame and guilt. It's about freedom. It's not about hiding in darkness. The gospel is about light, isn't it? The gospel of Jesus Christ frees us to look openly into our hearts, both privately and publicly. Confess your sins to one another, it says. And go to Jesus for forgiveness, to confess to Jesus, yes, I have allowed this to move from my hands to my heart. I've allowed mammon in. I've allowed weeds to grow. I haven't been as discerning as I should be. Lord, help me. It allows us to come and repent of the ugliness and sin. That's, that's the mark of a true believer, isn't it? Not that you're perfect. Not that you do this just perfectly, pinpoint perfectly. It's that you know you're a sinner. And you know that you fail. Yet you go to God for repentance and confession. And be accepted as a forgiven sinner that you are. Because that's the purpose of why Jesus came to earth. That's the purpose of why he lived the perfect life. So that you're not under the crushing pressure to do so the reason that, that he died a substitutionary death so that by believing in what Christ did you don't bear the penalty of sin which is death it's the reason he rose again from the dead to actually put a period at the end of the sentence to say death is no more in me power of sin is no more in me 
He did all that so we could freely look into that hard and gracious mirror and rely on his grace, knowing that we are ultimately in Christ accepted, loved, forgiven. He did that so that we would be freed from the slavery of materialism and given a new master. And that's the third and final metaphor that Jesus uses here, the master. Look at verse 24 with me. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The last metaphor Jesus uses here is the metaphor of slave and master, right? Sometimes we can expand this biblical idea of of slave and master like we do in Colossians when we're interpreting it to boss and an employee, right? I don't think we can do that here. 2,000 years ago, there were no part-time slaves. 2,000 years ago, a slave did not split his time between households. A slave was absolutely dedicated to one master. William Barclay writes, 2,000 years ago, a slave had no rights in the eyes of the law. He was a living tool in the hands of the master. So this is running through the, the people that are hearing Jesus here. This is what's in their minds. The master, Barclay writes, possessed him completely. He also had no time that was his own. Every moment belonged to the owner and was at his disposal. And Jesus is speaking into a culture and makes a hard parallel here that following him must be the same. Following him, there must be singular devotion. In a way, what Jesus is saying through the entire passage is that Singular-hearted, singular-eyed, and now singularly devoted to one master. Because it's, it's actually impossible to serve two masters, Jesus says. One of Aesop's fables is about a bat. You know Aesop's fables, those ones that tell us how animals got to where they are? One of them is about a bat. And the beasts and the birds were in, engulfed in a war, Aesop writes. The bat tried to belong to both parties. When the birds were victorious, he would wing around with the birds. When the beast fought and won, he would walk around with them, ensuring that he was a beast. But soon the hypocrisy was discovered, and he was rejected by both beast and bird. Thus he had to hide himself from both, and that's why bats only come out at night. Interesting story, but it goes to prove you cannot serve two masters. It's impossible. It eventually leads to difficulties in darkness. Serving two masters is, trying to, is like trying to walk in two different directions at the same time. Yet we try, don't we? We try this. We think we can do this thing. The word tells us that following him will necessarily cause separation from the world. In other words, if you're pursuing heavenly things in, in Christ, it will necessarily just lead naturally to a life that, that separates you from the world, that you're different. That's 2 Corinthians 6. But we try and live both, don't we? I can live in two different worlds. The word tells us that following Christ will necessarily, will naturally lead to us being despised and persecuted, right? That's John 15. 
But we try to remain in the world's good graces all the time, don't we? The Word tells us that the following Christ means devoting our whole lives, all that we are, all that we have to God's glory, but we try to compromise, right? Martin Lloyd-Jones tells of a farmer who reported to his wife that his best cow had given birth to twin calves, one red and one white. He said, you know, I've been led of the Lord to dedicate one of the calves to him. I will raise them together, and when time comes to sell them, I'll keep the money from the one calf and give the money to the Lord for the other calf. His wife asked which one he was going to dedicate to the Lord, but he answered that there was no need to decide now. There's plenty of time. Several months later, he came into the kitchen looking very sad, and his wife asked him, what's troubling you? He said, I have bad news. The Lord's calf is dead. But she said, you hadn't decided which calf was the Lord's. He said, oh yes. I'd always determined that it was the white one, and the white one's dead. That's kind of how we go with the Lord sometimes, isn't it? We can't live like that, Jesus says. We cannot serve God in mammon. We cannot serve God in materialism. We can't serve God in our reputation. We can't serve God in money. We can't do these things. We can't fly with the birds one day and walk with the beasts the next. Jesus is telling us we can't dabble in our Christianity. You can't dabble at it. It's all or nothing. And as the saying goes, it it comes out in the wash at the end, doesn't it? That is in part what Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler is all about, isn't it? In Mark 10, this young man who's wealthy comes and and he's devoted to to, uh, his religion. He says, what must I do to to have salvation? And Jesus says, you lack one thing. Go and sell all your possessions and come and follow me. And the scriptures tell us that he turned away and walked away from Christ. What was that one thing that he lacked? What did Jesus, because he was God, look into his heart and see that he lacked? Singular devotion. And he knew what he was doing when he said, go sell everything. Follow me. He was testing. He was pressing in on that singular devotion. And he does that with us sometimes, doesn't he? He presses in at times. Is it me or is it your job? Is it me or is it your reputation? Is it me or is it your possessions? What is it that you're really banking on? If you're a Christian that desires to bring honor to Christ in your life, your master cannot be yourself, your reputation, people you want to please and be accepted by, money, power, popularity, possessions, position. Christ must be the king of your castle. Has to be the king of your castle. We're going to close our service right now with the hymn, Be Thou My Vision. In the third verse we're going to sing, we're going to sing this, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. 
Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. If you're sitting here, if you're like me, let that be, first of all, a plea of repentance to Christ for putting other things in your heart. But secondly, let it be a devotion, a recommitment to making Christ our treasure. Let's stand and sing.